Well, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 22 this morning, so I would love for you to open up your Bibles there. And um, while you're turning there, I, some, many of you have requested that we have like some kind of something to hand out to people if you invite them to church. So these are little cards that I have them up here, but I'll put them on that welcome table in the back. They just have like our address here, the website, the time that we meet on a Sunday. Uh, I feel like over the last month I've invited a couple of people to church because they've, they've asked and they keep saying, so what time do you meet again? Well, this will solve that problem. So I'll put these on the back uh, table if you want to pick those up. Hopefully you're in Luke 22. We are going to be looking at verses 39 through 46. And as we look at our text this morning, I hope to encourage us in the area of prayer. Um, it was fun to recite the Lord's Prayer with you together as a church, to be reminded that we are not on this journey alone, but that we belong to God's family. And I think if, if the disciples are anything like the rest of us, which I think they are, forgive my mockery of them maybe over the last couple of weeks, but if their lives teach us anything about the struggle of the Christian walk, then I think that we're going to see today that prayer is a difficult and often neglected aspect of the Christian life. And I think this is a challenging subject, talking about prayer, because I think there are some underlying or even subconscious uh, maybe questions or thoughts that uh, invade our minds as we pray. They cause interference. They can lead to things that prevent us from actually being faithful in prayer. So today I hope to maybe kind of deal with some of those questions, some of that interference, and really encourage you to pray. Let me read our text, Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Uh, I have sort of poked fun at the disciples over the last couple of weeks and they deserve a little bit more of that today, but I'll, I'll go easy on them. Um, they were sleeping when Jesus had asked them to be praying, and, and that's another, I think, moment of disappointment in Jesus' relationship with them. But what I really want to do with this text is look through some observations about prayer that I think that we find in the text. And I want to conclude by sort of revisiting one of those observations before I let you go, okay? Or before we, we close with a few more songs. First, I want you to see that in a time of crisis, in a time of crisis, Jesus prays. That's his natural inclination in crisis, is to pray. But I also want you to see that that's not abnormal behavior for him. Okay, look at verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. 
So Jesus is facing the cross, and what is his final action before he is arrested? He goes to God in prayer. That's the last thing that he does. Uh, I, I sort of thought, imagine for a moment, play along with me. Jesus is like a homeowner in Florida, right? And he's heard on the news that there is a hurricane on the horizon, and he's looking out his window, and he can see it coming. And the natural reaction of people in Florida when the hurricane comes, if they don't get out of town, is to go and uh, hit up the hardware store to buy the plywood, to shutter up their windows, to stock up on water and food supplies, to just, uh, dust off the generator, and to lay out the sandbags. Right? They, they get to work. They do physical action preparing for the storm ahead of them. But they do it through purely human means. Look what Jesus does instead. That's not how he reacts to the crisis on the horizon. Instead, Jesus seeks out a quiet place where he can pray that God his Father would give him the strength that he needs to face what is ahead of him. In other words, he doesn't get busy doing things. He gets still before the Lord. When the storm approaches, when crisis arrives, Jesus prays. That's his natural inclination. But I don't think that's a difficult concept for us to understand, right? In fact, I think that that, probably you can relate to that. That's like natural human inclination, isn't it? Uh, I get the prayer requests for Maricopa Springs every week, and, and a lot of them deal with crises going on in people's lives. I'm going to guess probably everyone in this room has had someone at some point in their life reach out to them and say, I'm going through a difficult time. Will you pray for me in this time, Right? People who never pray, people who claim to be agnostic or even atheist, will suddenly cry out to the heavens in a moment of crisis because they feel like there's nothing else for them to do at that point, right? There's a human instinct to begging God for help when trials seem to get so overwhelming that they seem impossible according to human standards. Because we know that in a time of crisis, when things have gotten difficult, what we need is something more than our own strength. We need some divine intervention. We need some grace that is otherworldly. We need the strength of God himself to intervene and be our advocate. So in times of crisis, we pray, right? And generally, I think that comes pretty easy, actually, when things get tough. But I want you to notice a small detail that Luke puts in here for us to see. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, what? As was his custom. In other words, going to this place to pray, we know from other Gospels that he'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Going there to pray, this quiet, secluded place away from the hustle of the city, was not an exceptional or abnormal behavior for Jesus. It was customary for him. Jesus is not the kind of guy who only prays when things get hard. He goes there to pray frequently. I mean, think about this. How did Judas know where Jesus would be? Because it was, I mean, Jesus didn't have a cell phone. Like, he couldn't, like, text him and say, hey, bro, where are you at, right? Jesus knew, or Judas knew that Jesus would be there because it was Jesus' custom to go to this place and to pray. Uh, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane was a little bit like Grady hanging out in a Starbucks. Like, it just always happens, okay? And, and this, I think, is where Jesus stands out from the rest of us. I think we all pray when crisis comes. 
But are we faithful to pray when we're not in crisis? Jesus' prayers on the Mountain of Olives, they weren't an exception to the rule. They weren't a new plan of action. They weren't a response to some crazy circumstances. They were just par for the course. This is what Jesus just did. In light of the trials ahead of him, Jesus did what he always does. He prayed. And of course, then the question comes to us, what about us? I mean, if someone were to write like a gospel account of your life, if Luke were to follow you around and record the circumstances that are taking place around your life, would that person record that you prayed as was your custom to pray? If someone could read a narrative of your walk with Jesus, would they conclude that you are the kind of person who regularly dedicates time to pray to your Father in heaven? Or would they be forced to believe that you only put into practice the power of prayer on those odd occasions where you feel like your, your life is just swirling out of control? That because you can't do it on your own, now you're going to lean into Jesus. I mean, we learn from Jesus that when crisis comes, he prays. But he only prayed in crisis because praying was what he always did in the normal course of events. He didn't do something different in light of the storm on the horizon. He just carried on his normal custom of prayer, seeking the face of his Father. The second thing I I want to point out here is that uh, prayer is action. Do you believe that? Do you believe that prayer is action? Sometimes when I have a full email inbox and I have a lot of things to do on my plate and I have homework assignments, and I have meetings going on through the week, and my schedule is so full, I get this overwhelming feeling that if I were to just sit quietly in my office and spend 10 or 20 minutes in prayer, that if somebody walked past my front window and saw me, they would go, look at this lazy dude, avoiding all the work that he has to do, wasting his time, behaving like a slacker, just sitting in his chair in prayer. Do you ever feel like that? As if prayer belongs in a category of non-action, and meetings and emails and the busyness of life belongs in a category of action. And that's a lie. Jesus, knowing full well of what's ahead of him, believes that the most important action that he can take right now in this moment is to go and pray. And he knows that that's true for his disciples as well in the temptation that's going to befall them to flee, to run. That's why in verse 40, he commands them. He says, what you need right now is to pray. Sometimes I catch myself uh, telling people, maybe you've had this too, um, and maybe I've said it to you, and if so, I hope you understand. Uh, I'll say something like, hey, I will be praying for you, and is there anything else that I can do? As if uh, praying is not enough, as if praying belongs, again, in the category of non-action, and, and there's some other greater action that I can do in addition to prayer. I say that because what I want people to believe is that, like, I really want to help you. I really do. I want to help you. I want to take action on your behalf. But is there any greater action I can take on somebody's behalf than to pray for them? Like, yeah, maybe I can come alongside of you and help you move or help you paint or, or, or give you food or whatever the case may be. But none of those things are a greater action than praying for you. And so I have to ask you again, do you believe that prayer is action? Or does prayer belong in the category of non-action in your mind? 
Uh, when I was in high school, I did gymnastics for a couple of years, and the first like hour of gymnastics, the first like half of our practice, was just strength training. It was awful. It was terrible. I hated it. Uh, push-ups, sit-ups, all kind of exercises that were barely distinguishable from torture. And from my perspective, doing those things had nothing to do with gymnastics. Gymnastics, believe it or not, is a very technical sport. But the longer I did gymnastics, the more I realized that the first hour of practice, that conditioning, that strength exercising, while it seemed little to do with the actual activity of gymnastics, gymnastics would have been impossible without it. Because it takes those core muscles of the body. You can't accomplish anything in gymnastics without the strength behind it. There's no greater action in gymnastics that you can take than the strength training that prepares you for the actual activity to achieve great things as a gymnast. And I think the same is true of the prayer life of a Christian. The Christian life is all about prayer. It is fundamentally about prayer. And I would say you cannot accomplish anything apart from prayer. When you pray, however, especially when you first begin to pray, it may feel like prayer really has nothing to do with following Jesus. It it doesn't feel like living in obedience. It doesn't feel like sharing the gospel and evangelism. It doesn't feel the same as like, seeking to put your heart to avoiding temptation. It's not the same as Bible study where you're filling your mind with new information. It just feels different than that. It feels maybe disconnected even because there's not a real direct uh, correlation of of sort of uh, action and result. But the more that you pray, the more you begin to understand what Jesus understood. The prayer is indeed action. In fact, I think that I would go so far as to say that there is no greater action in the Christian life than prayer. Jesus says, abide in me. How can you do that apart from seeking his face in prayer? And this is why Jesus himself had the custom of praying. The Gospels record it frequently that he would sneak away to go find a place where he could be alone with the Father to pray. And not for like a couple minutes here or there, but for long periods of time. And so don't miss this point. If there's one thing that I could encourage you with this morning, that that you would leave here knowing and understanding, it would be that prayer is action. That's the category that it belongs to. And yet if you dissected the lives of many Christians, I think you'd find their prayer lives are very malnourished. They're intermittent at best. They don't know how great of an action prayer actually is. And I think part of that's because our culture is so obsessed with busyness. Man, you've probably heard me say to you before, and again, forgive me for this, like, I'm just so busy right now, right? How often do we say that to one another? We love busyness. We love movement. We love activity So much so that spending time quietly sitting with the Lord in prayer actually feels like a waste of time, doesn't it? And I want you to understand, there's no greater action that you can take in your Christian life than being in the presence of God in prayer. If you want to get busy following Jesus, if you want to get busy changing the world with the gospel, If you want to get busy making disciples, if you want to get busy 
making your home a godly home. If you want to get busy looking like Jesus, then you need to get praying. I think that's where it begins. Next, I want to encourage you to consider what do you pray for? Maybe you're like, okay, all right, Grady, I hear you. Like, I need to get active praying. What do I pray for? If prayer is action, how then should we pray? I think Jesus gives us at least some answer to that question in verses 40 through 42. It says, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think we hear the echoes of the Lord's prayer here, don't we? Right? Deliver us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So as we pray, as we take this all-important action to task, what do we pray for? Two observations for you. You've probably already picked it up. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but I think it's an important list. First, Jesus tells us, verse 40, that we should pray that we don't fall into temptation. God is faithful to equip us and to strengthen us to stand against temptation if we will only ask and ask with sincerity. I think the problem is all too often we don't ask. And there may be many reasons why we don't ask, uh, but I want to submit to you maybe one that you haven't thought about before. Is it possible that you don't ask that God would deliver you from temptation because sometimes you actually want what the temptation is dangling in front of your face? Like your heart is actually that corrupt that rather than ask your father that he would spare you from falling into temptation, you actually desire to have the lie that the temptation is offering you. The allure of sin grips you. The shiny glitter of the fool's gold of sin actually leads you to choose to enter into temptation rather than choose to pray that God would deliver you from it. And I just want to point out how painfully weak we are apart from Christ. We need Him. We need Him even to open the eyes of our hearts to the fact that sometimes we desire to enter into temptation. And to plead with Him to forgive us of that and to renew our strength. So we pray like Jesus commands that God would keep us from entering into temptation. And thank God that He's faithful to forgive us even in those moments that we do. But what if we spent more time praying that He would guard our hearts against sinful desires, the assaults of our enemies, so that we might stand for Christ, with Christ, so that we could spend less time praying that he would forgive us of the sins that we regret doing later. So pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Second, we need to ask what we, tr- what we should truly ask for, okay? It's not what we want, 
but that the will of God would be done in us, for us, through us. How amazing is this moment in Scripture? I don't know about you, but I, I find this passage of Scripture incredibly encouraging. It's an amazing moment that we get to see what Jesus prays for as he goes to his Father. Jesus is looking forward to the cross, the moment when the full weight of sin, the full weight of death, the full weight of evil is going to rest on his shoulders and his shoulders alone. And instead of begging and pleading that God would change his mind, instead of Jesus saying, you know what, I can't do this and I'm out of here, Jesus makes one simple request with an earnest heart that God would choose a different way. And then with utter trust and confidence, Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father. He entrusts himself to God's plan. And he does this because he knows that the will of the Father is good. He knows. He knows that his Father is good. He trusts that the Father will act justly, that the Father will preserve his life. Jesus knows without a doubt that the Father actually loves him. And because God loves him, Jesus is ultimately safe and in good hands no matter what the circumstances ahead of him may be. And so he says, here's what I want. I don't want to go through this. But Father, your will be done. I trust you. Listen to what Philippians 5 tells us. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known before God. Scripture says to you, Come to God and tell him what is on your heart. You are free to speak your mind to him. And here's the promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus receives from God. He does not get what he asks for. There is not another way in which God unfolds his plan to deal with sin and evil. And yet, Jesus receives everything that he needs from the Father to go to the cross according to the will of the Father. And so let us follow the example of Jesus. Let us understand we are, we are invited by God to bring our needs, our requests, our hopes, our desires, our hurts, whatever they may be, to God. Jesus again asks from his Father that he might not have to go to the cross. But after he's laid that request at the feet of his Father, even admitting the anxiety of his circumstances, or Luke shows us this, the blood or the, the sweat dripping from his brow. You ever prayed so hard that you sweat? Jesus has anxiety in his heart, but after he has laid the request at the feet of his Father, he then entrusts himself to God, and the peace of God that surpasses understanding floods the heart of Jesus so that in the moments ahead of him, in the hours ahead of him, as he is falsely accused, he gives no reply. As he is beat, he doesn't throw a punch. As he is crucified, he cries out, Father, forgive them. He goes through the suffering with utter composure, not getting what he wants, but getting everything that he needs from the Father. And so we're free to ask God for whatever's on our heart. And after we've asked, let us pray like Jesus prays, Father, I trust you. Not my will, but your will be done. 
and understand, know full well that God may not grant you what you ask. But he will certainly give us all that you need to persevere in the midst of the circumstances that he lays out ahead of you. Next, I I guess this would be my fifth point, and I'm getting close to the end. I want you to see that prayer does produce results. Again, do you actually believe that? Because maybe you've prayed and you've not received what you asked for. But prayer does produce results. Jesus doesn't get what he asks for in this instance, and that's important that you see that. But God does not fail to intervene on Jesus' behalf. Look at verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. The Father doesn't leave Jesus on his own. He doesn't respond to his prayers with silence. He does not fail to act on behalf of his Son. He sends a ministering spirit to strengthen Jesus to be able to endure the cross that God has laid out in front of him. Okay, now understand, again, I'm not suggesting that if you pray that God will send you angels. He may do that. He may not do that. But at the very least, it is fair for you to expect that God will send you his Holy Spirit to minister to you, the helper whom God has given to you to carry you on to the end, to completion. In a supernatural way, maybe even in a merely to your appearance, a natural way. God will produce the results that you need to get you through, to be obedient to him as these things come upon you. It may not be the results you're looking for, but there will be results because of your faithfulness to engage in the action of prayer. God listens to prayer. He responds to prayer. It's a great and beautiful mystery. Do you believe that? So trust that when you pray, God in his goodness, God in his kindness, he will work those prayers for your good because he loves you. In a whole variety of ways, God will use your prayers to actually minister to you. And he will be faithful to produce results that bring him glory. And he will be faithful to work according to his timing and his will for your good through those prayers. One final point before I kind of circle back and and conclude with, with an idea that wraps this together. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives because he needed prayer. He needed it. And if Jesus, the perfect Son of God, needed to pray, what do you suppose that means for you? What do you suppose that means for me? Do you presume to be greater than Jesus? Neglecting prayer, depending on your own strength, to do what Jesus clearly couldn't do except through the power of prayer. Jesus, with a perfect and inseparable relationship with God the Father, understood that what he needed in this hour and in every hour was prayer. And if that's the case, who do we think that we are to make prayer just a minor part of our walk with Christ, our Christian life. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you and I need to pray in this journey that we're on? And far be it from us to think that we're better than Jesus. Far be it from us to think that prayer is of little importance when Jesus prayed. 
If Jesus needed prayer in his life, then you and I, we need it to an exponentially greater degree. And so let us pray like he prayed. And that's the same call I want to give you again as I close. Let us pray. Because as I said before, prayer is action. In our passage of of Scripture today, we see that this point is made uh, in one other way, as the activity of Jesus contrasts with the inactivity of the disciples. Do you see this? Jesus jumps into prayer, which is action. In contrast, the disciples fall asleep, which is clearly inaction. How tragic that in this hour of need, Jesus finds that his friends are sleeping rather than seeking the face of God in prayer. So I want to encourage you to pray. Don't be sleeping on the job. You need to pray. There is no greater action than prayer because Jesus, our example, made it his custom to pray. And that's the final reminder I want to to leave you with is this. What is Jesus doing right now? I mean, if the skies opened and you could see him in all of his glory, do you know what you would see him doing right now? He sits beside the Father. I see some of you mouthing it back to me. In prayer for you, for his bride, for his church. He remains in prayer. Do you see? You have at this very moment a great high priest who is always faithful to engage in the action of prayer on your behalf so that you will not fail to finish the race that God has set before you. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christian, you need to pray. Brothers and sisters, you need to pray. You need to pray as a customary part of your life. Like, people need to say of you when you're missing, where is Grady? Oh, he's praying as is his custom. You need to pray that God will keep you from temptation. Not just give you more grace on the backside of sin, but that he will preserve you in the time of trial. You need to pray that God's will will be done. Not just that your desires will be met. You need to pray because there is no greater action in the Christian life. And you need to pray because Jesus sits in heaven on your behalf, waiting for you to join him in the great work that he is doing as he lives always to make prayer for you. Let me pray for us. Father, don't let these words fall on deaf ears. Don't let them fall on hard hearts. I ask that you would be faithful. We know that it is your will that we would pray. And so, Lord, as we leave here this morning, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us people who pray. That we would join you in this great work. That that we would be committed to praying that you would deliver us from the evil one and guard us against temptation. That we would be committed to prayer like your son Jesus was committed to prayer. And Father, we desperately need you to do this work in us because this world feels 
so overwhelming and so material that our natural response is to do whatever we can to fight against it. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would cease that busyness and we would get to work with the action of prayer. Lord, give us humble hearts and give us, give us hard knees as we bow before you and pray. And God, I do ask that we would see results in prayer, that we would see your will be done through prayer, that we would trust and believe that this is a way that you change the world through your people praying. This is a way that you change our hearts through the prayers of your people. And we just give you thanks for, of this, for this good news that, that your son Jesus sits at your right hand even now praying to preserve us. Lord, we worship you for your faithfulness. Amen.